folks, thanks for listening today. I'm excited uh, to have Sean Scott on the phone. Uh, Sean is one of the owners at Subculture Coffee down in, well, two locations now, one in West Palm Beach, Florida, which is where they got started, and then now Delray Beach. Um, so, Sean, thanks so much for taking the time today, and I uh, appreciate you doing this. Absolutely, man. It's a pleasure. So just tell that. I mean, I've read, I've read a little about your story but um, and why you got started, which I thought was really cool, but kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, what, what was the genesis of, of starting Subculture Coffee? Um, well, you know, I, I, I've been a coffee lover for a while and I had never worked in a coffee shop, but I played a lot of music. And when you travel and you play music, you spend a lot of your downtime in coffee shops. So, um, I had always dreamed of kind of doing that one day, um, when I decided it was time to settle down. And so about six, a little over six years ago, I did a space share with my brother, you know, just to kind of limit startup costs, get an art gallery. So I figured it would work well if we shared space. And um, so I kind of just opened up a little coffee stand in there, just me and my wife, um, a bare bones uh, approach just outside of D.C. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of where it all started. Um, but it, it was, and that was my first coffee job. I'd never, never worked in coffee before I opened a shop. So I don't know if that was the smartest thing, but <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's worked out. It's worked out so far. So, the, uh, well, okay. So, I mean, that takes that takes a lot of. I mean, I mean, I love I love coffee. I love coffee quite a bit. Um, but starting a coffee shop seems. Uh, uh, I mean, there's just so much that goes into that. That's a that's a big big leap. Um, and especially now down where where y'all are. Am I right that like there's not around sort of the. Um, southern tip of Florida, you don't find a whole lot of independent coffee shops, or is that was that the case when you started, or is it still the case? Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. You know, when, when um, before we were subculture, we kind of rebranded a little over a year ago to subculture, but uh, when I started Habitat down here, we were the only independent coffee shop in West Palm Beach, and West Palm Beach is, you know, it's a small city, so uh, South Florida is, was definitely, is still, um, I call it a wasteland of good coffee. <laughs> um, wasteland of good coffee. Yeah, you know, there's there's just nothing there, there's nothing down here. But I figured that'd be a uh, it's a good opportunity for me because I think everyone can appreciate good coffee. They just need to be exposed to it. So I think in you know cities where it's developed, it would actually be harder to get into the market and make a living doing it. Whereas down here, um, I, I figured the product would sell itself and it'd be easy to kind of get my foot in the door. Um, especially with the, with the minimal cost, you know, because it was just me and my wife, the overhead was, was really low, um, and you know we could run it super efficient. Um, but that was the case, you know, it gained popularity pretty quickly, um, and you know it was just gone from there. So now there's definitely more. Uh, in the past two years alone, there's been quite a few other coffee shops and roasters pop up. You know, Panther Coffee in Miami was started about the same time I did down here about three years ago and now they're they're pretty big, um, well known Joel's you know, well known in specialty coffee. So uh we're we're creeping onto the scene finally. But uh yeah, I just figured it'd be um it'd be a good place to to expose South Florida to good coffee. So Yeah man, and you guys are um there, am I am I right that you I uh, wrote some notes that you guys are w- w- what's called a micro roaster? So you roast your own beans? 
Yeah, yeah, we we roast all our own stuff. Um, that's that was a new thing for me. You know, I I had worked with Counterculture, which I'm sure you know who they are. Um, when I first opened the coffee shop six years ago, and I was a customer of theirs um, for about four years. But yeah, we switched over to roasting our own when when we rebranded as Subculture. Um, just because I teamed up with a local um, another guy here, and we thought it'd be a good idea to just. Give give that a go. Um, we both really wanted to be, you know, have a story from start to finish. You know, it's kind of popular now to say direct trade relationships, but um, if you're looking at a business, um, it's really nice to be able to know, you know, farm to farm to cup, you know, what's going on with your product, and so that's really a large part of why we started roasting um, was just that we could have pretty good control and personal relationships with our with the people in our supply chain <clears throat> so now well, now how you so farm to cup like how do you if you're roasting that must mean that you're where do you source your beans and how do you go about making you know finding high quality good beans to you know, well i mean it's, it's difficult yeah that's that's definitely the, the hardest part um you know execution of coffee is I would say it's the easiest part, but finding beans, because there's so many. I mean, coffee is the second most traded commodity in the world. It's huge. There's just an endless stream of uh, sources to get it from. But um, the the grading and quality control and shipping and all that stuff in third world countries um, isn't that uh, rigorous. You know, it's getting better. Um, but for us, you know, we, we use... You know, we started with Cafe Imports, who's a you know super reputable um, importer for specialty coffee, um, just to start. But you know, like we've we have a farm in Honduras that we're talking to directly right now. Two farms in Brazil that we're talking to. You know, I just got a call while I was driving from the farmer, which is pretty cool. You know, to have that um, accessibility now in the 21st century, just to be able to literally talk to the guy in Brazil um, who's, who's sending you coffee. So, um, and they came through Modbar, which is the, the espresso system that we're going to be using, um, that we are using in Delray. Uh, so it's just, it's one of those things, it's like any business, um, your sourcing just takes time. It takes talking to people, you know, getting referrals. Um, that's where we went off of. We didn't go into a blind, you know, we asked the guys at Crema in Nashville, you know, who use, who they use for sourcing because they're the ones that kind of train, trained us how to, how to roast. So for us, it was just all referral. Um, and then it's just, you know, finding the bean that you like, you know, for the style that you want um, and just whittling it down and kind of refining it year after year. And it's it's a long-term approach. If you're going to roast, it's not a, it's not a, um, you know, quick process. And anyone that thinks it is doesn't know because it's a, it's a true craft. It's kind of like, I call it like an old world craft because there's not any quick way <laughs> to do it. Coffee's slow, you know. Crops are slow. The shipping's slow. Um, the, uh, aging and all that stuff. There's, it's just a slow um, industry that requires kind of quick execution. So it's quick at the retail end, but everything from farm to cup is actually a really slow process that requires patience and a really good palate and kind of just trust, you know, old school trust and that what the farmer said he's sending you is what it is, and it's this year's crop, not last year's crop, and it's this grade, not that grade. So a uh, long-winded answer, but there's just there's a lot to it. So um, it's it's been interesting. Man, you know, it's a great answer, and I love, I, I really, uh, 
there's so many aspects of that that are just fascinating to me. Um, I mean, my mind is just going in a million directions right now. Because, like, I, th- I thought of 20 questions when you went through that. It's so cool. So, well, let me ask you this. Okay, so you were talking to, you know, directly to farms. It is, would it be safe to assume, help me on this, like, certain years Brazil has good coffee because, the. I mean, doesn't climate play a role in this? Like, uh, Oh, for uh, sure. I mean, isn't that like a huge variable that's like unpredictable that could completely change, you know, the quality of the beans year every year from, you know, one, one place to the next? Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, that's the thing. Um, and that's kind of the, the, the sad, you know, it's sad, but it's a, there's a lot of risk for the farmer, you know, because there's many variables out of their control. You know, Brazil got crushed this past year because they had um, disease run through a lot of their crops. And, um, and I want to say a third of their normal production was cut which is massive because Brazil is the number one producer of coffee. So that, that throws the coffee market um, kind of into a, a frenzy because, um, you know, obviously it's supply and demand. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's <laughs> – that's but that's where relationships and, um, you know, a lot of people are doing origin trips. It takes – on our end, too, you really have to get to, to know um, just – fundamental kind of agriculture and a lot of people like you know going back to counterculture some town of those guys they have active people year round that help the farmers kind of produce the best crops um institute better growing practices um just either whether whether it be technology or just you know knowledge that we have in the states that they might not have access to down there um and you know sometimes they're they're not going to have a good crop and you know a lot of times smaller guys like us don't have multi-year contracts for that very reason because we, we can't undertake the risk of having a bad crop arrive and then we're stuck with it um but bigger you know bigger roasters can do that uh, you know national roasters can do that um because they have more of the, of the control but you're completely right i mean it's uh, there's many variables out of our control so um you know we personally don't do you know a multi-year contract because of that um but again just like the other guys, because this is a learning process, we'll help mitigate as many of those factors as possible so that we can have kind of consistent crops from the same farmer each year without saying, ah, this year we're in, this year we're out, you know, because then it's, it's just difficult for them because um, they have, you know, they have bills to pay to and families and communities that they're trying to support. So um, uh, we're going to do our best on our end, but it is it is risky. Yeah, there's a little bit. Of, there's a relationship there. There's a little bit of karma, I would imagine, that is just an important part of that, and helping each other, and having like a long sure. view. Uh, so, which is really cool, man. It's like one of the great things about coffee, I think, is that you do have that that piece of it. At least you know the folks that are really serious about it, uh, like you guys are, and uh, they take the craft very seriously. As you mentioned, it really is like an old world craft. Which old world, you know, not only is it the craft of the roasting and brewing but the relationships that you know would have been in place you know thousands of years ago when people were trading coffee like that then so it, there's a little bit of that still around which is uh which is awesome which is great for people that really love good coffee i'd be one of them um right. uh, so then you you really so then you get so you've got this um cycle of you know finding and sourcing and um uh you know, receiving good or ordering good 
beans, quality beans, and you get those and then now what does that mean that you're a, a micro roaster? Is that based on a, a volume that you roast or how how does that work? Yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's one of those words, you know, I don't I don't know when you go from micro to macro. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know uh, you know, where 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 exactly uh that cuts off. You know, I think for for us, you know, I think once you hit um yeah, I I can't give you a definitive answer to that, but like in in, in my opinion there's definitely a tipping of scales. You'll see it a lot with um with some roasters. You know, I I see them when they do mail order and all of a sudden they'll give you the option to grind the coffee before it ships. I'm like, oh, they're a macro roaster now because <laughs> they'll pre-grind coffee. That's, you know, because that's just a big right. no-no in, in specialty coffee. You just don't pre-grind coffee because, you know, it ages so quickly. Um, and so for me, it's almost, but that correlates to, to massive volume too because they just have so many, the, the demand is so high um, that, uh they kind of just do whatever, but a decision's made, you know, a lot of them get outside investment, um, you know, millions of dollars. There's quite a few micro roasters that now have now scaled up dramatically in the past year, years, especially on the West coast where they've had, you know, huge investments. And when you get that, you have to have a return. So your whole business model changes from, I feel like from like small batch to, you know, all of a sudden you're doing 20 pound batches and you go to 150 pound, 300 pound roasts. You know, which is a big difference. Um, it's just like anything. I I don't know if you can maintain the same level of uh, care and uh, kind of specificity on your batches when you're when you start having you know hundreds of pounds in the roaster, you know, compared to tens. Um, so I think it's it, that's subjective. You know, there's there's not a definitive answer, but uh, that's there's just some some parameters that that I that I see that kind of correlate to micro and, you know, macro. So that's about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, so, I mean, you – and you roast, like, what, three or four days or a week or how – I mean, how often are you roasting? I guess does it just depend on yeah, like, about, how much business? Yeah, about four. Um, you know, and we have roasters in each of – each shop. So um, a lot of guys don't do that. They'll have, like, a main place to roast, and then they'll ship to their shop. Um, but we kind of like that, that, the added ambiance it brings and just the tactile experience for customers. Um, so yeah, we, we roast about four days a week, um, a minimum of three and just depending on, you know, flow and what's going on. You, you know, you, you have to roast essentially three days out. So you have to forecast busyness too, cause you can't roast today and brew today. Um, so to speak. So it does require, seeing trends um, and, you know, kind of knowing your seasons and all that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, about three or four days. Do you – so when you say it's a craft, I mean, um, talk a little bit about that and, like, you know, how much of this is just a a, a skill that is learned over time through trial and error, through practice? How much of it's based on, you know – I mean, is there, like – better technology and equipment these days that helps make that craft easier to learn or just help me out with that. Yeah, well, I mean, coffee is definitely trial and error. Um, I think there's there's nice parameters that you can find out there um, that kind of give you a baseline, and then it just, again, you know, it's finding out what style of espresso you want, 
uh, what brew methods you prefer, um, and then you just taste and taste and taste and tweak and taste and um, and then you know it's just like over time you you just refine your style um, through trial and error. Um, but but there are baselines, and roasting has been difficult because if, I feel like a lot of roasters um, keep their their trade secrets to themselves, <laughs> like they don't talk about it that much. Um, but you know, I'm not I'm not part of the roaster skilled yet, so I haven't I haven't been to any of their retreats. But <clears throat> if you try going online and finding anything about roasting, it'll be all over the map. I mean, uh, it's a lot of it's about home roasting, and but there's nothing out there for you know small small guys, small roasters like me, small commercial roasters. Um, so it's just trial and error, man, because each bean, each crop comes in and. Um, you just have to find out how that bean is uh, works best um, and how it doesn't work. And I think that's where like, a really good staff, uh, a trained staff, comes in to play huge because an Ethiopian might be great um, through a Bonmac and slow pour, but might taste really rough through a French press. Um, but that's where they have to, you know, we kind of stress going through and, making sure that we know how each coffee tastes best and kind of guiding people with what, um, you know, which which way they may want it um, and which way they they won't. You know, even some coffees cool really horribly. So I'll be like, you want to drink this coffee fast because it's delicious hot. But when it, when it gets a little cooler, the acids turn on you and it can, you know, it's not, it's not that great. So, um, yeah, trial and error, man. But that's what people aren't used to either, you know, because we're used to big box um, you know, retailers um, were used to consistency. And so the craft, a lot of people think it's sexy, but with craft, there's it, stuff changes weekly. Um, and that's the fun part about it. You know, that's that's the alive part about it. That's where, you know, people, you can keep them on their toes. But that's where the struggle is. You find that people almost like homogenization and they get a little frustrated when they're like, why can't I just have that? same coffee month after month. I'm like, because it's seasonal and we only have 10 bags of it, <laughs> you know, or, you know, whatever. And uh, so that's that's been a challenge. You know, people people uh, like that for a little bit, but they want their, you know, consistency year-round. So, um, but that all comes, again, that all comes with us educating them through our day-in and day-out trial and error. So that's, that's the vast majority of it, man. There's not a kind of a lock and load approach. It's it's just going about it every day and being surprised. Well, that's really cool. And so you mentioned, you know, educating people. I was curious about that. Like if you are in a community where there are not a lot of independent uh, coffee shops or have not been, and maybe, you know, and you guys are kind of the tip of the spear with that in a lot of ways, do, are there like pros and cons, meaning that there's pros that, you have an advantage that you know you're you're filling a void, but then are there also some cons where everybody's kind of used to you know their Starbucks or whatever big chains that just you know like there's just you have to kind of educate your market about the, maybe the differences and what the difference in quality is and so forth. Like is that? Yeah, well, you know, I I think um, you know where I differ differ from a lot of the third wave shops. Um, you know, there, there's kind of a a knee-jerk reaction, in my opinion, to Starbucks and those guys where it's like no syrups are allowed in third-wave shops and only one size, everything's allowed, and, you know, it's like a very purist approach. Um, mm. Where me down here, I, I'm not like that, you know. Um, so 
again, we suggest sizes and our proportions are all, you know, correct. Um, but like we have a regular and a large, we have four syrups on hand, you know, we do mochas, you know, we have seasonal drinks. Um, and that's me kind of conceding to the fact where I, you know, I want people, I can still serve great coffee, but if they want hazelnut in it, cool. And I'm cool with it. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make them feel bad about it. Um, and, you know, especially in our environment, I think it's necessary uh, to have those where, um, you know, over time, uh, it's really cool to watch people start pulling the extras out of their coffee when they're like, oh, this is great. You know, once their palate gets refined, you'll see a lot of people do that. They'll switch from whatever their go-to was at Starbucks to just, you know, straight cappuccino here. You know, there's nothing else. I don't need any. I don't need to put my cinnamon and my whip on it and all that kind of stuff because um, it's just good as it is. So, um that's where it's like I'm, I'm much more subtle in my in my approach, and I think it's necessary to know your market because if if you go in with like a self righteous attitude, I think you, you may you <laughs> you may not be around for too long, or or you'll just you know you'll you'll alienate a demographic or a large part of the demographic that you, that you don't necessarily need to. Um, but I, but I am a relationship guy. I'm much more about having a community space um, than I am like maintaining the integrity of a cup of coffee you know like i just want people to gather i want to serve great coffee but i want to be a community spot first and foremost because um, that's just kind of our ethos down here so you know different strokes different folks <laughs> sure sure well you know you know what your approach is and you guys are sticking with it and that's i mean that's cool that you have like a good balance of um you know high high quality product but also not kind of over the top in your face purists you know, this is an art, not a business kind of thing, because it is a business. And on that note, so you've now got, you opened your, your second location. So talk a little bit about going from one to two, because that's a big, big change, I would think. Yeah, it's, yeah, it, it is a big change. You know, we have 13 employees at our West Palm um, shop, and we have about 16, 17 at the Delray. Um, different vibe. So, you know, it's for me on the management side it's just difficult because you you're just managing people a lot. You know, when you have mm-hmm. thirty people I'm I'm sure you know this. That's that's almost more of a challenge than than the logistics of um the actual business because once you know <clears throat> coffee is coffee and and margins are I, I kinda already know what the margins should be and what the numbers should be every day. So Opening a second one isn't that difficult business-wise. It's just it, it can be more more of my time and energy is spent with on the people side, which can detract from focus on you know other things in the business. So I think two is gonna be manageable if you know my because my business partner um, is really amped about this. If we if we do more than two, um, we'll definitely have to develop uh, leadership um, that can take more of that um, off my plate so I can maintain kind of the feel, the vibe, and, you know, the quality of coffee. So that'll be hard. You know, I'm not quite there because we're kind of new into the second one. So, you know, talk to me in a year. And, um, and you know, I, I'll probably have a better a better answer for you, but those are the current challenges. Yeah, yeah man, that's cool. Now, so uh, did I, you may have mentioned this, but I missed this. Do you, you roast at both locations? Yeah. Okay. Um, so then, and is that something you 
I mean, I guess it's you. And well, like you said, you really don't know yet. Would you would you think you would continue to do that as you continue to grow to to have that at all your locations, or does it eventually become a thing where you have to consolidate your roasting? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I I would I think we'll always have a roaster, but the roaster could just be smaller and you know kind of do specialty um, uh, or special you know special beam just for that shop or a certain you know espresso blend that we just roasted that shop. But I think if we do grow, um, there's going to come a point where we'll centralize all of the roasting just for, you know, quality control um, purposes. Um, so I think, you know, we have Dietrich IR-12s, which are fairly decent-sized roasters. Um, so I, I don't think we'll we'll want or need those at other locations if we open them. Um, but, again, I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying not to look too far in the future about that because I think if you if you focus on or for me if I focus on the growth outside of these first two shops um it it just gets me off of making what we have solid because I mean we're we're a fairly new business you know my yeah. again my partner's been in the restaurant business for 30 years down there down here so he he's really established um but he's never done coffee, so it's it's different than the other ones. Um, so uh, we're gonna take a, a shop at a time, but um, you know we'll see. I don't think every shop will will supply its own coffee though for for the long run. I don't, I don't foresee that. So do you um now is it? I mean, do you have um what what types of food items do you guys have? I mean, or is it, are you you know is it, do you need to you do you sell additional pastries or things like that to help generate more profit or um I mean I'm, I Yeah yeah. Yeah, we do um we do we do all in house, you know, um food right now, just your typical, you know, pastries and muffins and uh we do our cold press juicing, which is pretty pretty big down here. Um and I guess everywhere. Um so that's that's a large portion not a large portion but a substantial portion of sales um and we 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 have uh prepackaged lunches and stuff brought in every day um but we're we're gonna be switching over to doing it ourselves this year so we'll, we'll be doing all the you know just salads and sandwiches just all cold stuff nothing hot um but yeah that's that stuff's important for sure uh grab and go items to uh, kind of pad the sales Right, right, yeah, exactly. Um, now, how do you? Um, what are some of the things you guys do? To, uh, I mean, are you are you doing a lot of advertising and things like that, or are you just kind of growing, you know, word of mouth organically, or what have y'all done to try to get people to come in? Um, we do um, Google AdWords. Um, Express has worked really well for us. Uh, okay. Yeah, that, that's that's been. Yeah, because a lot of people just because we're a tourist destination too. A lot of people just pop up in their phone, and punch in coffee West Palm Beach or coffee West, you know, Palm, or yeah, sure. coffee or whatever. And so on Google, and, and you know, we get, it, you can just really specify your demographic and your area and all that kind of stuff and your keywords. So that's really worked really well for us. We don't do a lot of standard print advertising, um, and you know, we do some sponsorships locally, but pretty much all of it is. Um, it's just you know 
search engine stuff that that we focus on and then just some some local um sponsorships yeah i mean are a lot of your customers you you have in your tourist area a lot of folks are traveling there but um you have a you have a a good solid uh group of regular customers that is continuing to grow as well or is it a good mix oh, of yeah, for sure. tourism yeah, yeah. I mean, Delray is a little different because it's such a tourist-heavy uh, spot. But West Palm, we, there's City Hall, there's a library, there's um, a lot of daily um, people uh, that that we have. Um, you know, we we're we're a little seasonal, um, but we're not affected too much by seasonality. You know, um, sales will differ about fifteen percent, um, fifteen twenty percent, which it may seem like a lot, but when you when you expect that, it's not you know it's not a big deal. You can plan for it, but um, yeah, I, I would say you know seventy five percent of our people are regulars. You know, so pretty pretty heavy on the regulars up here um, down in Delray. You know, I'd say it would be about sixty forty since it's a little bit more tourist tourist driven. What now? How do you? Um, one thing I'm always curious about, Sean, is um, how do you know when you found the right location? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's like you probably explore a lot of different ones, and then how do you know when to pull the trigger on a location? Well, I think locations for coffee. Uh, one of the main things for people, it, it's got to be on their way to wherever they're going. Um, so, and it has to have walk-by traffic. I think one of the main um, issues that a lot of coffee shops have are they find a really cool spot and it's just a block or two out of the way but that block or two like can kill you because it can mean 500 people aren't walking past you each day so your rent might be 500 bucks less a month but your but the impact is dramatically more than that so for me even with kind of our brand getting known down here we're on the main strip in downtown west palm we're on the main strip in delray um and that's that's essential um, just because I, I still think it has to be on people's way. It has to have um, really easy available parking. Um, it can't be a destination. You know, I think too many people think their place is going to be the place that everybody will go to. It's a destination. I think that's a that's a um, that's a bad move. So we're we're pretty deliberate on having you know again available parking and pretty heavy walk by traffic. Not just dr- drive by. People tend to just keep on driving. Um, you know, they're just not, they're focused and they don't really want to pull over. So, um, being in a downtown area, that's why we kind of pick these two. If people are coming here and they're staying here, they're not driving through here. Um, and so that's what I think is important, at least for what we're doing. Nice. Uh, uh, for anybody that's concerned, I mean, you know, there's just, there's a lot of folks that, uh, probably want to do what you did, but have a lot of, reservations i mean i love how you just kind of just jumped into it and um went after it did you well like what about the um what are the investments i mean obviously you've got a lease which is a big commitment or whatever and you're built out and then you've got uh a significant amount of equipment but building a coffee shop or starting a coffee shop certainly isn't maybe you know quite the same as if you're going after you know a big full service restaurant or whatever um what are some of the things you learned from like when from when starting that maybe things you 
hadn't thought of before you got started, or you know, you kind of look back and said, "No, oh, I didn't think of that before we got going." Um, I think a lot of people, um, me included, you you underestimate um, just the the liquid cash you you should have accessible when you start. Um, you think, um, all right, so I I have the go out paid for and everything. You tend to spend everything before you open. And you're like, well, we'll make money once we're open. Um, and I think that's uh, a bad move. Um, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would have more money um, in the bank um, just because you're going to have to do a lot of promo. Um, you're going you're gonna to waste a lot of products. Um, you aren't going to make as much money as you thought you were. Uh, <laughs> you know, things might happen slower. Things break, um, you know. Uh, usually opening gets delayed a lot longer than you thought. There's way more permits that they need to pay for. There's way more licenses that are 150 bucks here, a few hundred fifty bucks there. Um, I think that's the thing is like a lot of people just focus on paying for the build out, um, but they don't they don't really pad um, their account. And I understand because a lot of people don't have access to the capital um, to cover all that. But I think it's really important. Um, that can that can make or break it, especially in the first year. But maybe that's but maybe that's a good you know kind of rule of thumb, if you will. Is that you people don't, but maybe you shouldn't start just yet, right? <laughs> Until you do. In other right. words, like that's because that could be the you know there's a lot of places that don't make it that first six months, partially for that reason. Like maybe maybe if they waited and they had more reserve cash, they could get through that challenging period and get you know, but. What would you then? Okay, so Sean, let's say you went and you were you went back and you were talking to you know Sean Scott from several years ago before you started this. How much like capital would you say you need? Like how many months worth of you know um, operations capital would you need to have stashed away to to feel good about it? Six months or uh, a year or yeah 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 I would say six months is good you know for us you know I. I would also advise anyone that, that is going to do it. Um, if your personal finances are a mess, then you probably shouldn't go into business. So, um, you know, like a really good litmus test that, that I, you know, I, when I'm talking to younger people or whoever asks, I'm just like, so how are your personal finances? Not that I want specifics, but if you've had a hard time managing your personal finances and if you can't figure out ways how to save money and do this and do that with your personal then business might not be the place for you because you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to know, I don't, um, literally, you know, like we we price out per cup of coffee, like lids, cups, coffee, milk, sugar. So I know exactly like where everything's going. If, and the same thing applies in your personal life. If you don't know where everything's going, um, then you're going to be there's going to be a lot of holes in your boat. And you're going to be a lot, losing a lot of money. Um, so I think for me. That's what I did. Uh, I was always very conscious of that because my dad gave me my own checking account when I was 12 and I had to start buying my own clothes and all that kind of stuff at a very young age. So um, so accounting has always been uh, something that I've had to focus on and be aware of, so it's almost natural. But for, I found that for a lot of people, like my wife, it wasn't like that at all. Um, and so we just made a decision to, you know, like I'm, we moved in with my brother before, we opened the first coffee shop, you know, just to save, um, you know, we just shared rent with him. 
uh, we, you know, we had one car instead of two cars, so we sold the car. Um, we just, like, minimize our lifestyle before we open the shop, too. Um, so that's another thing I suggest is don't expect to maintain your same lifestyle or minimize it on purpose so you require the least amount of money when you're starting up and then, you know, expand it if you can afford to as you grow. Um, so I think those those things are, you know, I, I almost put more emphasis on your on your personal um, life before you open than I do on your vision of the business because they de- there's a definite correlation there I think you know in my opinion um, to to how you'll to how you run both um, and and the success you'll have and the ability that you'll have to to navigate rough waters and and make it through um, you know and survive so Sean okay so this is really 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 good advice I mean if you're listening to this and that's true. That's really true, you know, in, in nearly any business. I mean, if you are, you really do need to have uh, a firm, firm handle on your personal finances if you're going to get into any kind of business, and particularly a restaurant where you do, you need to have that um, that discipline and in the skill set to, to manage that properly and be able to predict and plan. And um, like you said, I mean, your costs not your cups and lids and everything else and a lot of people are you know that that lesson gets learned the hard way the other thing um that you said i think that's extremely extremely important is is the idea that things take longer than you think things will cost more than you think no no matter how diligently you think you are planning and how conservative you think you are it will still take longer and cost more, won't it? <laughs> Isn't that just how it works? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, for sure. I, I think mean, that's without a doubt. There's, there's, ne- in my six years of doing this, there's never been a time where I'm like, oh, that was faster. <laughs> but it never happens that way. It's always the opposite. It, or, or, oh, that yeah. cost a lot less than I thought. So the the idea of um, I really think you're onto something with which you know, like a lot of people, they don't have like reserve cash sitting around or six months worth or whatever, and they make it like, and you did or whatever. But but it's a your your chances are so much lower if that's the case. You're taking so much more risk, and a lot, and I get it because you're kind of like you got this passion and this vision, this idea, and you're like, Let's, we got to go, we got to go, let's do it. But maybe, you know, if you really take the sit back and take the bigger view, all right, and think of the long term. Are you trying to build a business to start tomorrow so that you can sell it, you know, in 18 months? Or are you trying to build something that's going to be here 20 years from now? And if that's the case, which is right. typically more often the case, especially for something like a restaurant or a coffee shop, then, then just hold on. Wait, get it. Give yourself the best chance by you know t- taking an extra year or whatever, and because nobody's going to come, it's not like you're going to miss the opportunity. Like, oh well, if we didn't start it this year, the whole market was going to get flooded, and we were there. Like, if you're going to build a good business, a good restaurant, a good coffee shop, it's going to be good now, or it's going to be good two years from now, whenever you start it, if you're doing it the right way. And that, I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, no, hundred percent. You know, I think that's what. Um you know, uh, a lot of people think that they have to, you know, grab the lightning. And I think in different, different industries that may be the case, you know, like the tech world for sure because it changes so quickly. I think those those challenges are completely different. But for us, you know, and that's what I was, you know, I had a talk with my partner about that because there's, you know, there's 
bulletproof coffee. That that fad was kind of. He's like, oh, should we serve bulletproof coffee? And then another guy, like people are bottling their cold brew coffee. Should we bottle our cold brew? And for me, I'm like, well, all those things are fads. You know, good coffee. Um, even during the recession, you know, six years ago, the coffee industry didn't dip. Um, so if we just provide a really good cup down here and do a solid job and don't chase the trends, because um, the trends will distract again. I, I think that's one thing is having a clear um, focus and mission as to what you're you're going to do. Um, don't you know? Don't chase the wind. Um, I think for us that's crucial um, and sticking to that because the temptation's there. You'll be like, oh, this guy is selling his bottle cold brew like crazy, um, but bottle cold brew, will, will, it, nobody will be talking about it in a year probably. Or, you know, or it'll, it'll be such a small, you know, impact on your business that it's not worth all the energy and time you're putting into it. So, um, yeah, I, I just say stay the course and kind of really know why you're doing what you're doing and just do it well and do it in, a, in the time that is best not, like right now, because out of a sense of urgency, I think that'll that'll set you up to make more decisions. That's such good advice, man. If you're listening to this, just rewind that and listen again. Everything I completely agree with everything Sean just said. Now I do need to ask you something. Did you um did I hear you mention bulletproof coffee? Yeah, yeah. So that's funny because uh uh, which is folks, if you are are not familiar with that, um, it's a it's uh, a coffee that a guy named Dave Asprey kind of came up with something called Bulletproof Coffee, which is uh, you put you take your coffee and you put, and correct me where I'm wrong, Sean, but I, I used to make this sound like a, a tablespoon of uh, unsalted grass-fed butter and then a tablespoon of like MCT oil or coconut oil and you blend it up into like this frothy thing that's got like a lot of, um, well, basically all that oil and butter is just, is, is, you know what he would say is really quality fat. So, but it's a kind of frothy, creamy right. drink with caffeine and fat that should fuel your your morning or whatever. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you were you guys doing that? Were y'all brewing bulletproof coffee? No, no. I, you know, I a few people had asked me, and um, but it was more because they it turned into like this meal replacement weight loss deal. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. And I'm. And I was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, I, I just don't want to, I don't, like, I feel like that that is a disservice to um, what we're doing because, you know, I first of all, I'm not going to profess anyone to skip a meal to replace it with oil and coffee. I just, you know, like, personally, like, just eat whole foods and eat healthy and exercise and whatever. But, yeah. um, you know, uh, so, yeah, I, I had it and it, you know, some people love it, and it it does provide a lot of energy because you, you are getting those those good fats and the caffeine. But yeah, I mean, it's it's just one of those things. I'm not going to change my menu for it because down here at least that kind of passed, and no one's really talking about it right now. But a year ago, we oh, it's already coming gone. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So well, that's good, man. You know what you you know what you want and what your business is all about in your core. And I think this is another piece of really really good advice. It's just not following you know not following the fads and not getting caught up and letting um, you know shifting winds drive which decisions you might make that are important for the business. Because it's not just like oh we're going to serve this. It's it's now it's adding you know supplies. It's adding a process. It's training. It's 
it's costing it out, it's you have to blend this, so maybe you need more blender or whatever. Like it's not just a thing you say, right. oh, well, we could just do that. Like, oh, you want that? Yeah, we've got the butter and the MCT oil right in the back here. Let's just blend one up. So um, I love that, man. Well, hey, Sean, listen, I know you're a busy guy, and we've talked for a while, and you've given a lot of really, really good and useful advice, and you have a cool story. So, uh, hey, man, just thank you for doing this very much. I know anybody that's listening to this is going to get a ton out of it. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do it. Absolutely, man. I, I, it, was, it was fun to talk and, and share with you guys. Cool, man. All right, well, listen, we'll let you get back to it. Uh, I'm sure 95% of the country uh, would love to have the weather that you guys probably have now on March 13th, but we'll, um, you know, we'll, we'll let you go enjoy that. All right, brother. Bye, man. See you. Talk to you soon. Bye, bye.